You may think you know a little bit what that means. Some of you might think, what's that? Some of you might have heard whispers about what that is. God is calling us, I believe, to be an apostolic community. And over this next year, that's what I believe God's calling us to be. And I'm going to explain over weeks, and not just me, but others are going to explain what it means to become an apostolic community. I'm going to leave that slightly hanging in the air. Here's a question for you as we begin. What brought you to Christ? What brought you to Jesus? In a, in a second, I'm going to ask you to do that scary thing that sometimes I do in church. I want you to talk to a neighbor, a person next to you. And you, it, you can be honest and say, actually, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure I am necessarily fully uh, in a relationship with Jesus. I'm not sure who he is. But if you are a Christian, if you consider yourself a Christian, what were your first thoughts about Jesus when you encountered him? What were your earliest wonderings about this person? Was it kind of a, wow, there's something about him? Or was it questions? Or was it uh, an excitement? Or was it you just grew up? What were your first, what brought you to Jesus? Just turn to the person next to you. Literally for 30 seconds, I want you to just talk about the person of Jesus. Was there something about him that attracted you? Was there something about him that confused you? Was there something about him that kind of seemed different? Or something about his character, his personality? Just 10 seconds, the person sitting next to you. I don't want you to talk about Jesus, what you thought about him, if you can remember back a while back. So some of you may be really settled about the whole who is Jesus question. Some of you quite legitimately might still be exploring that. Well, that's brilliant. That's what church is all about, a place to explore more about who is this Jesus character. Um, Mark's going to come and read to us, if you've got a Bible from Matthew's Gospel chapter 2. If you haven't got a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. Come to church and get stuff free. We'd love to give you a Bible. We've got ones at the front if you'd like to just use one and can take it away with you. We'd love you to have a a copy of that. Chapter 2, starting at verse 1 down to verse 12, and uh, Mark's going to read that. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. Where did the prophets say the Messiah would be born? He asked them. In Bethlehem, they said, for this is what the prophets wrote. O Bethlehem of Judah... You are not just a lowly village in Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod sent a private message to the wise men, asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when they first saw the star. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, Come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. Once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
But when it was time to leave, they went home another way, because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Brill. So, Epiphany. Now, I, I recognize that most of you haven't been up all night wondering about Epiphany, um, and a, l- a large number of people these days haven't even really heard about Epiphany. Uh, certainly outside of the church, they wouldn't, and, and even within the church, it's not something that we particularly talk about. Technically, it falls on the 6th of, uh, this, of January, uh, 12th night, which of course is when you take down your Christmas decorations. Now, you all knew about that, didn't you? That technically is Epiphany. Well, Epiphany, the Sunday of Epiphany is the one that follows that. Um, it's the day you're supposed to get 12 drummers drumming, uh, whatever that's about. Uh, at, but it's typically remembered by the arrival of the, the Magi, the kings, the wise men in um, Bethlehem. What's interesting in Spain, I was talking to someone from uh, at St. Tom's this morning from um, uh, Italy today, is in, in kind of many European countries, it's actually a much bigger deal, the whole kind of magi coming so all the kings people dress their kids up as kings and there's lots of processions through the towns uh, and you get your presents from the kings and on those days unless you've been naughty and then you get a lump of coal apparently um, from a witch i'm not quite sure how that fits into the whole story but you know that is europe i guess that's why we're leaving um oh hello It's a big deal in many of those countries. but f- And actually, interestingly, for the church, the kind, of, uh, the kind of early church, it was actually the second great feast day epiphany. The first one, of course, was Easter. The second great feast day of the church and celebration was Epiphany, and the third was Pentecost. Christmas, as we celebrate it in December, the birth of Jesus, wasn't celebrated till about the fourth century, actually. Epiphany was the really big deal. Well, why is that? Epiphany, that's just when the the kings came, right? Well, yes and no. Traditionally, for the church, that was part of what Epiphany was, because Epiphany is about the revelation of Jesus. And so his first miracle at Cana, turning of the water into wine, that was rolled into the Epiphany celebration. And also Jesus' baptism, where you remember God from heaven says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. A revelation of who Jesus was. Because epiphany literally means revelation or manifestation. It's Jesus being revealed for who he truly was. As God, as king. So he's revealed when the magi come because they bow down, they worship him, they bring their gifts that prophetically speak of who Jesus was. Gold for a king. Incense because he was God to be worshipped. And myrrh because there was going to be death and pain, and suffering. And he would be the king who was crucified for humanity. So it's a revelation of the Messiah at his baptism, the revelation that he was God's chosen son. In his first miracle at Cana, he wasn't just a good godly prophet, a good man of God, but he was God, the God of transformation. So those three kind of elements are wrapped up in Epiphany. And and certainly in the church calendar, each year um, at this time on Epiphany, there's perhaps different readings in the lectionary. This year it is about the kings, and mainly that's what we think about. Epiphany, therefore, is all about the revelation of who Jesus was, the big reveal. Um, We in England, we love the kind of Poirot, Agatha Christie, kind of death in paradise thing, don't you, where you have this big question and, and, and uncertainty, and who did it? And then at the end, you have the big reveal. Oh! Oh, that's who it was. That's what it was. In a sense, that's what epiphany is. The revelation, the manifestation, the answer. Jesus revealed as King of Kings. Messiah, hope of the nations. 
mighty deliverer, redeemer, saviour. Jesus is all those things. I wonder what he is to you. I wonder when he revealed himself to you, how did he reveal himself to you? Was it as Lord? Was it as deliverer? Was it as redeemer? Was it as king? Was it as friend? Was it as the God of love? The amazing thing about Jesus is he reveals himself to us, not just generically, but actually specifically according to what is needed perhaps in our hearts or in our circumstances. And Jesus wants to go on revealing himself to you to reveal more of who he fully is. So the wise men are celebrated on Epiphany because, interestingly, they're all about the revelation of who Jesus was to the Gentiles. Because remember, these guys, they weren't Jews. They weren't good Jewish boys. They had traveled from across great distance. And so the wise men, the Magi, it kind of speaks of Jesus being revealed to the nations Whereas the shepherds were Jews, they were Jewish boys. Um, shepherds were kind of the scum of the earth, really. So here's Jesus being revealed to the, the lowest of the lowest of the Jews. Not the high and the mighty, but the lowest of the low. Revealed to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. That's what that speaks of for, for, uh, within that whole section. And certainly this whole episode in Matthew has kind of captured the imagination of the church uh, and people for many, many, many years and inspired all sorts of legend. Um, the Magi became known as kings. Any of you ever been to a, a nativity play or you were in a nativity play, uh, if you remember that far back? You know, the kings with their cardboard crowns and their big capes. And, you know, they, they, they weren't kings. Actually, the only kings we read about in this passage are Herod and Jesus. Herod manifesting exactly what Jesus was talking about later when he talks about kings who uh, lord it over the people and abuse them, tyrants, not pastors. So they're actually, they're not kings. We often call them wise men. Well, again, the wise men, the wise men in this story are Herod's advisors who are trying to find out where this Jesus is and they're searching the scriptures, but they haven't really found any answers. We call them wise men. In the Middle Ages, um, the church kind of decided that there were three of them and gave them names, um, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthasar. And, you know, that's just the kind of legend that grew up. I guess three because there were three gifts. But the Eastern Church actually um, kind of talks about there being 12 of these magi. But if they're not kings and they're not the kind of wise men in the way that we perhaps think, well, what were they? Well, I think quite a precise description of what the Magi were was that really in many ways they were a priestly cast of astrologers. They were mystics, which at the time was kind of regarded a bit like a sort of uh, high supreme science. And so they were a sort of bunch of guys who were scientists and practiced other religions and used their faith and their kind of um, analysis and knowledge of various scriptures, amazingly, to bring them to Christ. Because God seems to do whatever it takes to reach out to embrace people. And he reaches out unexpectedly and embraces the unexpected. Maybe we should sometimes expect the same. God reaches beyond shepherds at the bottom of the barrel, right through to these new age wise ones who are at the top somehow. And seemingly reaches out to them and draws them in. God reaches beyond 
our norms, our expectations. And all along the way, God directs these magi, first by a star, then via verse from Micah. They studied the scriptures. They understood more than the learned Jews of the day. And finally, God speaks to them in dreams. Did you notice that? Warns them to go back another way. God spoke to them remarkably, incredibly. It's mysterious. It's miraculous. Revelation, manifestation of himself that it just seems kind of crazy when you begin to think about it. God announces the birth of the Messiah to shepherds, through angels, to magi via a star, and to the political and religious authorities of God's own people through these visitors, these new age guys from the east. From a manger where a child lays wrapped in bands of cloth, God's reach, God's embrace in Christ gets bigger and bigger and bigger because he longs to reach out. He longs to reach out, to transform, to heal, to inspire He longs for us and others to encounter him as Emmanuel, if only we have ears to hear. Because Jesus' draw is unparalleled and unprecedented, and we need to remember that. Jesus draws, Jesus longs to draw people to himself. Listen to this verse I read today in Hosea. This is God speaking. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. That's beautiful, isn't it? That is God speaking about his people. Well, listen to this in Jeremiah 31. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. We have a God who lassoes us with his love. Why is it that so many people think that we have a God who beats them with a stick of judgment? What have we done as church to make people think that's the kind of God we worship? A God of judgment, a God of destruction, a God who holds people back because they're filthy, rotten scum. When the God I read about in Jeremiah says, I am the God who draws you with cords of loving kindness. My heart is to draw you Yes, you are a sinful people, but while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's the God who wants to overcome and draw. That's the God of grace. Jesus' Jesus's draw is unparalleled and unprecedented. In life, he eats with the outcasts, with sinners, with the scum. Jesus touches people who are sick, touches the unclean, people who live with brokenness. Jesus even calls the dead back to life. Ultimately, Jesus draws all people to himself as he's lifted up on the cross, we're told. In Christ, no one is beyond God's embrace. So for the early church, therefore, the point of epiphany wasn't to remember some sort of historical thing that happened and we all go, oh, nice, and we all get our camels out with the kings on. It wasn't about that. The point of remembering and celebrating epiphany so lavishly and wildly was to remind themselves continually that God delights in appearing miraculously, in revealing himself in places and ways that we don't expect. The people of God had cried out for a saviour. No one was expecting a baby. And I think for us as church... Our role is to be part of that story. Not reducing or controlling what God wants to do, but 
being eager, like children at Christmas, full of excitement and hope that God wants to do something new, something better, something more exciting, something extravagant, because the world we live in stinks right now. It's dark. It's painful. It's filled with terror and fear and worry and anxiety and social and political unrest and uncertainty, financial questions and anxieties. But Jesus is the rock on which we stand. He is the unshakable, immutable God who cannot be moved. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so in a, in a world of turbulence and uncertainty and waves of destruction and fear and darkness, Christ shines all the brighter, I believe. And our message and our truth, our conviction, even in the midst of persecution and difficulty and suffering, is that God is good all the time, and Christ rules and reigns. And one day every knee will bow and confess that he's Christ the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our God. And those who put their hope in God, it's not in vain. We may be beaten, but we're not overwhelmed, because God is the Lord, and Christ is on his throne. And we, therefore, as God's people, full of eager expectation that the world may say is naivety, we look at the world, and I want to be a church and a people that looks and says, God, where is your spirit moving? Because I want to go and participate in what you're doing in the world and in our community. Because God hasn't given up hope for Whitcomb or Bath, or this nation, or the nations of the earth. God is longing for his creation to be restored and redeemed. And he wants to use you and me as part of that. That's the mystery. That's the wonder. God's spirit is ahead of us. And I sense stirrings in this city and stirring in this community and stirring in our church body here that God is wanting to lead people out there like the magi, the unexpected, like the dumb, stupid, scummy shepherds on a hillside who've been rejected from every other job and all they can do is look after stupid sheep at the risk of their own lives. God wants to reveal himself to those because he loves them. From the new ages to the virtually homeless and everyone in between, God wants to reveal himself by dreams, by visions, by angelic encounters, through heart tugs, through people who are searching scripture looking for truth, through circumstances, and who knows, maybe even through stars. God can speak because God is longing to draw people to himself and wants to use you and I to help them encounter him, to help him experience the manifestation of his presence, to have an epiphany. Don't you long for people in your workplace to have an epiphany, a revelation of Jesus? Don't you long for those shops on the high street where, you know, I often walk down and I chat to people and I used to go into Lenny's and good old Lenny's and they're a bit, right, Vicar, I, you know, I got to know those guys. I love those guys. Or down in Fine and Dandy where I get my hair cut. You know, for those guys in there, I'm getting to know really well. I just long for them to have an epiphany of Jesus. It's great that they think we're all kind of nice and a bit crazy and wacky, but I want them to meet Jesus. I want them to encounter him. I want them to have a vision of Jesus. I want them to experience him in his glory. And he wants to use you and me and us as part of that, as truth bearers. I want them to have a revelation of who Jesus really is. And that's a spiritual thing that happens. It's like Peter. You know, when Jesus says in Matthew, to six, Matthew 16, says to Peter, but who do you say I am? 
And out of Peter's mouth, I think unexpectedly, he answers, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. He has an epiphany, a revelation of who Jesus really, really is. Not some religious nutcase or some good teacher. You're the Messiah, you're God. How many of your friends or work colleagues would you love to have an epiphany like that? Oh, yeah, but you don't know the guy I work with. He's such a cynical old goat. He's really, really awful. He's a bit like doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas, who when he has a revelation of Jesus, so it makes one of the most profound statements of faith that you'll read in the Bible. Jesus turns up to him and says, Thomas, do you want to put your hands in my holes? And he falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. Doubting Thomas becomes one of the most profound declarations of faith you find. Because Jesus wants to draw. Jesus doesn't just look for those who are kind of soft and simple. He goes to the Thomases. He goes to the gobby Peters, who are always getting it wrong. He goes to the New Age Magi from millions of nations away. He finds, he draws, he searches out, and he longs to use us. That's why we're doing Alpha. We feel stirred to do Alpha. And it's been really exciting to hear people who are saying they're coming. We want more. We want to pray more in. It's not just Alpha. It's our lives, our community. We want people to have epiphany moments. That's why on the Alpha course, there's those first few weeks where, who is Jesus? Why did Jesus die? We want to explain that so that people can encounter him through hearing the truth. And the truth is, you, we will never argue someone into the kingdom. It's good to have discussions. It's good to be able to talk about theology. I love theology. But you're never going to argue someone into the kingdom. They need to encounter Jesus. They need to have an epiphany. That's why I asked you earlier, what was your earliest thoughts, your memories about Jesus when you encountered him? We need to go back to our first love sometimes to remember that. Our friends, our colleagues, our family members need to encounter Christ. And when we encounter Christ, when people encounter Christ, it demands a response from us. What happens when God is manifest, when God is revealed? Well, we can come up with excuses. Maybe some of us here have done that. We can say, oh, I'm, really, I'm too busy to get involved in this kind of spiritual stuff. I'm too busy. I, I couldn't do church. I, I, financially, I couldn't give. I, I couldn't. Or we become scared, scared of spiritual stuff. We need to pray for some of the guests who are coming to Alpha, for all the things that hold them back for Jesus. Because it does demand an answer when you encounter Jesus, when you truly encounter him. What did the wise men do when they saw Jesus, when they encountered him? That epiphany moment, when they see Jesus in a manger. This baby, they've come to meet a king, and they see this baby born in a kind of dirty, dark manger. They didn't start rationalizing it. Maybe they did in their head, but they actually had a response they came to worship. And I think that's what wise men and women still do. When they encounter Jesus for who he truly is, they just simply fall down and worship. The Greek word that's used in this passage uh, of adoration is proskuneo. We've talked about it before. It's a word that is, is, is only used in terms of responding to God, worshiping God, giving homage to God. And it has a really vivid image. It's about prostrating yourself, throwing yourself down, bowing down low, coming to the kiss. One of the translations that's often used is, is a, a dog will come and kiss and lick its master's hand when it sees its master. It bows low in obedience. And, and what it's almost like saying, 
Worship, true worship is abandoning yourself before Jesus, coming to the kiss, experiencing the kiss of heaven. So for us this year, my prayer for us is that we don't worship God from afar, but in our worship, we, like the wise men, kneel before God and experience the kiss of heaven, heaven touching earth in the form of Jesus. And we carry that good news to the world around us. We want to share that making known and sharing the incredible news of Jesus to a bunch of people around, many of whom have no idea that God is nearby, that God is close, that God wants to encounter them, and God is already drawing them. And that's why we exist as an apostolic community. That's what God is calling us to be, and we'll be hearing more about that. Apostolic means sent, sent ones. We as a church are not supposed to simply be in a building and expect people to come into us. If you love Jesus and you have a pulse, then you are sent to your workplaces, to your families, to your places of study, to the streets where you live. When you go home tonight, you're sent by God to be salt, to be light, to be transformative. We go to exist, to infect and inspire. We go to transmit truth and to transform communities by our very being, by who Christ is in us, in our weakness, that Christ can shine and Christ's glory can be manifest. We go according to his will, in his power, and for his glory. Because we're told to pray. You know that familiar prayer? Praying and believing for the prayer that Jesus taught us, taught his friends to pray. Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Have you ever prayed that prayer? It's a really good prayer to pray when you don't know what else to pray. Oh God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And where is that? It's here on earth, in Widcombe, in Southgate, in Bristol Water, in RBS, in Ralph Allen School, in KPMG, in our homes, in our communities, on the school gates, in our communities as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Wherever you go, God wants his kingdom to come. And he can do it through you in those places. So the enemy lies and says, this is his territory out there. Every area is an opportunity for God's kingdom to come more fully in these days, I believe. And so in 2017, that's our mandate for as church and as people, worshippers, witnesses, and warriors. I want to finish with this verse. Romans 11:36 says this. For from him and through him and for him are all things. This is speaking of Jesus. Let me read that again. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is what it says in the message. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory, always praise. Yes, yes, yes. Got to love the Americans. At least they didn't go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. That's true. That is Jesus. That's the the one that the kings came to worship. That's who the, the shepherds encountered. That's who is Lord of your life. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. And everything ends up in him. He is the king of kings. 
and the Lord of Lords. So why and how do we exist as church, as an apostolic community? Well, for from him and through him and for him are all things. From his person, through his pattern, for his purpose. That is what we exist for as church. We're not just a social club. We're not just a nice gathering with nice blue chairs. We exist from his person, through his pattern, for his purpose. That's probably a sermon for another week. But that's what God's calling us to be. A sent apostolic community, reaching out with faith, sometimes with fear and timidity, but with the power of God that's in you, because the same power that rose Christ from the dead wants to fill us, overwhelm us, encourage us, and carry us into new territory to see taken for God's kingdom. I'm going to pray, finish with this prayer. Um, I often use it at the beginning of the year. It's really helpful. Um, it's the covenant prayer from the, from the Methodist church, good old John Wesley. Many of you will know. And this is used in, in many Methodist churches at the beginning of a new year. And I find its words of this prayer strangely compelling and challenging in equal measure. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to pray it. But so you don't feel tricked, I'm going to read it to you first. And if at the end, when I've read it, when I say it as a prayer, you think, yeah, I'm going to go for that, you can say amen. Because let's not be religious. Let's only say amen if we kind of really mean it. Because amen simply means, yes, Lord, I agree. So this is the prayer, and then I'll pray it. This was written in 1780. I think it's great for 2017. Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. I'm going to pray that prayer for myself. And if at the end you think you want to make that your prayer too, you can just simply say amen with me. Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.